Welcome to the Leadership Drip, coffee and conversations for leaders leading the next generation. We're excited to welcome another incredible guest to our table, but before we do, could you do us a favor and hit the subscribe button? And while you're at it, go ahead and give us a five-star review. That helps these conversations reach other great leaders. Pour yourself a cup of coffee and get ready to join us at the table for another great episode of the Leadership Drip. Rob, welcome back to the table, my friend. Welcome back. Did you go Mr. Cotter with it? I did. I couldn't help it. <laughs> well, it's, it is welcome back, though this episode true. will probably release in October if you're listening. Um, it is early August here, which means welcome back to the students here on the Lee University That's campus. That's right. Tomorrow is the day. To the scorching humidity of Tennessee. Ugh. Like you just sweat stepping outside. I'm sweating now. <laughs> you don't need to know that. Please don't. Our guest doesn't need to know that. Who no. <laughs> Our guest is Glenn Packiam. He's the associate senior pastor at New Life Church in Colorado Springs. He's the lead pastor of New Life Downtown, which is one of their campuses. Uh, he's also one of the founding members. You'll love this because you're kind of like the same age I am. Yeah, of Desperation yeah. Band. That's remember right. Remember the song Rescue? Yeah. Like that was my jam, my prayer jam. I was like on my face crying with that yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's an ordained Anglican priest. He's an author, pastor, songwriter, and he also a practical theologian, which we'll get into in a little bit. But he's now at the table with us. Glenn, welcome to the table. Thank you so much, Jeff and Rob. Great to talk to you today. Awesome. So, man, right off the bat, we got to get to... Uh, kind of this this onslaught of titles bro like this is this is heavyweight material here man so in your rep- repertoire of amazingness like right now what is the thing that's like your favorite sort of expression is it the writing is it the pastoring is it don't and don't give me the cliche answer bro like I love everything <laughs> you know what I'm saying come on let's let's get real here like where are you at uh, right now that's funny well, right now, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a few days away from celebrating my 20th wedding anniversary. So my favorite title is just, you know, husband to Holly, dad to our four kids. But I know oh, that maybe you're, that's the cliche answer. No, Rob. no, that's, that's that's good, man. <laughs> but in the ministry, in ministry life, I love being a pastor. I love I love walking with people. I love helping to develop leaders and I love preaching and teaching. So that's the, the pastoral kind of work is 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 my fave. But I do miss, I will say, since you guys mentioned the Desperation Band stuff, I do miss, you know, being up on the stage with the boys, you know, back in the day. We did do a little reunion because this summer was the 20th twentieth Desperation Conference. Wow. And so we had a little 20-minute reunion set where uh, John and Egan and Jared Anderson and I, you know, we're all back together, a bunch of old guys. But what was cool, though, is our kids, who are now teenagers, were you know were in the room worshiping their faces off as their oh, that's cool. old guy so, dads were singing the hits. What years were you in desperation? No, I got to point to my so question. We started it. I was part of the founding you know crew uh, in '02. It would have been and 2002. And I stepped out after. Gosh, it was probably 2009 that I stepped out. I think I had a nice wow. seven year run. Did some solo records on the side, just you know for fun, and then fully stepped out of worship leading stuff around 2012 when we started new life downtown one of our congregations and our go ahead ahead. our model of doing yeah our model of doing congregations or campuses or whatever new life is that everything is live so it's live preaching it's live everything so i was a little preoccupied on sunday mornings and i you know had to kind of lay down the guitar so i was i was an assembly god youth pastor 2005 to 2000 i think it's nine ish six maybe 2006 2009 Glenn and his crew were at the Illinois Assembly of God Youth Conference. Uh oh. Uh, de- listen to this billing. Listen how good this was. It was Desperation Band. Uh huh. 
and the speaker at the time was a young African-American preacher by the name of Robert Madu. Oh, like, uh, Robert, man. Like, it was like, like it, Robert Madu was just a young, young buck at that point. He like on the scene, but like, it was a great weekend. Our kids loved Amazing. it. Speaking of Robert Madu. <laughs> it won't be on the show. Won't. <laughs> We've tried Robert. We've tried. We've tried. We've tried. Okay. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. But bro, That's listen, what you, you're, you're, you have to make do with me. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. no, just for like, like I'm sure Glenn was probably there that time or I'll, 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 maybe. Probably. Maybe. Um, so yeah, Desperation Man was there. But I, I, was, I think, I think, bro, you're living our best life. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> I know in my heart, I can't speak for Jeff, just but it. yeah, it's true. I think just one time, just to get up on stage and wail like that. You know what I'm saying? Like so, me and my brother used to play UK. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So when I was like six and seven, my brother and I used to air guitar to kiss all the time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so there you go. You, you know, know the story, right? Like, and you, you, we, we were an undergraduate here at the same time, Glenn. Um, I had a guitar and wanted to, wanted to That's be a guitar true. player. That's true. So I, I'm going to name names while we're naming That's names. True. Um, a, a young man who was here giving me guitar lessons, who has gone on to win many a Grammy, yeah, looked at me and said, Jeff, you should probably give it up. Now, <laughs> this, listen, he went on to have a highly successful career as Jeff, Taylor Swift's Jeff, record producer. Jeff There's Nathan Chapman. Nathan Chapman said that to me. He said, you should probably give it up. That's hilarious. Well, I guess if Chapman said it, it's probably all right, but. Well, I mean, anyway, yeah, anyways, so okay, we're way off, way off. It's been so, a, it must have been a while since we recorded a show because we're like all over the map, anyways. So, so you, you love pastoring, you love people. I want to know kind of how you moved kind of down the process of being in Desperation Band and then into this pastoral role where you're the communicator and speaker and, and leader. Yeah, it was a gradual thing. I mean, part of discerning your vocation in life is, is paying attention to those threads and you kind of look back and, uh, and say, you know, where, where are the sort of fingerprints of God at work? And it was around my 30th birthday that I began to, some older mentors invited me to be part of a workshop of discernment, you know, and, and it involved writing down, you know, these master lists of verbs and, you know, you're supposed wow. to circle all the ones that you can do like, okay, I can do this. I can do, you know, then you were supposed to sort them into, uh, greens, yellows, and reds, like greens are, I can do them and they energize me and yellows are, I can do them and then kind of neutral and reds where I can do them, but they drain me. And so part of that discernment process was, was recognizing that actually before I started leading worship, I'd always wanted to preach. And when I was a young kid growing up in Malaysia, you know, I'd get together with our cousins or whatever, and we'd put on some kind of, you know, drama or talent show, you know, as kids do. And I was always insisted on adding a sermon at the end of the talent show. Like I was 10 years old. I'm like, I'm going to preach a little five minute message. So there was something there that I knew. I, I love the word of God. I love preaching and teaching. And I felt like the Lord was saying that was the time to, to switch, to kind of, to kind of adjust the, um, the trajectory of my life. And I'm grateful to have been in a church context where that was allowed. And, and yeah. uh, I, I, I was, I'm trying to think when exactly it was, it was 2008, uh, maybe early 2009. Uh, I started to feel this tug toward uh, pastoral ministry in the different mode. I mean, I, I want to say worship leading is a kind of pastoral ministry yeah. as well. So a different mode of pastoral ministry in, in, in a different capacity. And as I began to follow that, I thought maybe church planting, maybe that's the, the route to go. And I actually took a couple of staff members from New Life on a scouting trip up to Fort Collins, which is a city about two and a half hours 
and north of us and got busted for it. Our new senior pastor, Brady Boyd, he'd come in to replace, uh, you know, Ted after the big scandal in 06. Brady had come in in 07. And so I'm like, you know, still kind of young, getting to know Brady. And he finds out that I'd taken this scouting trip with a couple of staff guys. And he's like, hey, did you did you do this? And I was like, yeah, I did. And he goes, well, maybe next time, like, talk to me before you go take staff members on a recruiting trip. Like, it's kind of great to be in the loop. And then he pivoted the conversation and said, so is this in your heart? And he really yeah. shepherd, shepherded me through wow. this discernment. Yeah. Like, uh, and I said, yeah, I do feel this is in my heart. And he said, well, I see it too. But before you make this huge jump from like worship pastoring to, to lead pastoring and preaching and teaching weekly. And at that time, I'd only preach you know, a handful of times a year at the college ministry and maybe a couple Sunday mornings here and there. And so he said, what if you started a Sunday night service and you let it be yours? You can kind of experiment with some of these liturgical historic practices and you get to get your preaching chops down. And I thought it was such a mercy yeah. and a merciful and wise move from a leader, mm. a gracious leader. Uh, and so that was pivotal. I was blessed to have that in my, in, you know, at 30, 31, uh, to have that kind of invitation in my life to, to, to transition in a safe way. Transition but, ministry roles. In a safe way. Yeah, I think from a leadership perspective, I mean, Jeff and I have had this conversation on the show many times about sort of that similar or exact same scenario where an, an, a more wise or more experienced pastor is, is voluntarily taking the younger pastor and saying, hey, I see your heart. I see what you want to do. Let me help you create it, right? The, the yep. ad, you know, sort of the converse of that, of that conversation is the, the sort of the threatening, mm-hmm. um, yes. you know, yes, if that's what you're going to do, you need to pack up your stuff and, and go, right? I mean, so... So from a leadership perspective and, and, and your kudos you know, to him for being mature and secure enough to actually see that in you and want to develop it, um, this, this modeling kind of uh, piece that we talk about so much on the show is this reverse mentoring piece, right? So, yes. so in, yes. in, in the process of, of allowing young adults to express or explain what God is doing in their lives as leaders, I think it's up to us to pay attention and to listen to what God is doing in their lives, right? So that we can cultivate it versus being threatened. So all that sort of diatribe to say this, uh, in that process, what were your fears or what were the insecurities you faced after he confronted you? And how did you kind of Mm. deal with those? Mm. Well, I I thought I was in trouble. I mean, I knew why I was, I was going to sit down with him in his office but he was so gracious. It wasn't like going to the principal's office. And yeah. I grew up in a high authority culture in Malaysia. You know, you got called in the principal's office. I got called once to, the, I mean, there's a, there's stories from my childhood. I could tell I have, I have major sort of like, Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble, you know, <laughs> uh, but he wasn't like that at all. And I, yeah. I will, I, I, I love the opportunities to brag on Brady because in a mega church context, especially those leaders tend to be uh, territorial, uh, mm-hmm. protective, defensive. You're not with me. You're against me. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, look, we, we're hearing about that a, a, a lot these days. You know, yeah. the, that kind of culture is being exposed. And and I'm so grateful that he was not like that. That he looked beyond even my little misstep to say, "What's the what's the bu- beautiful thing that's actually underneath right. that mess?" And to say, "There's a calling here." And hey, let me give you a safe place to develop that. And even the permission to say, 
explore some of these liturgical things. I, you know, I went from leading worship in the desperation band, this, you know, contemporary modern worships, you know, rock and roll stuff, whatever, to recognizing that, hang on a minute, there's some deficiencies here. And I, I, I admittedly in my zeal and in my youthfulness, you know, again, late twenties, early thirties, I maybe was swinging the pendulum too hard the other way and kind of like, man, modern worship can be superficial and we need right. liturgy and we need that. You know, I, I don't think I ever fully like, like denounced it or I was not like trying to trying to throw it all under the bus, but I was a little bit jaded of the lights and smoke and rock, rock yeah. show kind of deal. And I was blogging about some of that, thinking out loud about some of that. And yeah. instead of being threatened by that, again, he was like, look, I, I'm paying attention to what you're wrestling with. I want to give you basically I want to give you a laboratory to test some yeah. of this out. And so we we started the Sunday night service in the fall of 2009 and that became a lab to do weekly communion and and pray like old prayers and to say a creed in the middle of worship. And I'm still a charismatic Pentecostal at heart so we're saying the creed but we're saying it with like a keyboard pad under it. You know like it's got to the vibe has to be right, you know. Amen, bro. <laughs> so, Amen. Amen. So, so it's all, I was, I was trying to sort of find my way and I'm so grateful for a leader that gave me the grace and the space to yeah. do that. Yeah. I think that's such an interesting point, Glenn. And, and what I don't think we hear a lot about is a leader creating a laboratory for other um, expressions within their house. Cause it's still under the brand yeah. of new life. It was still a new life campus or a new life service. Um, and so what was that like? What was the response of, of the house and of the leadership to go, hey, here's a piece of our brand, but it's going to look a little bit different. We're going to take a little bit different approach to it. How was, how was the response of the people and of the leadership there? Well, number one, I, I think anytime you start the conversation, I don't, I'm not faulting your choice of words because your your use of the word brand is a that's legitimately how many 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 churches think of it yeah. and but i think if they if leaders think of it as a brand you will always make narrower choices because to protect hmm. the brand is is we do this one thing you know yeah but brady from the beginning used the metaphor in the language of family and um he understands i mean uh, he, he he has talked publicly about um his own, you know, ra raising kids that are adopted and, mm -hmm. and recognizing that, that sometimes there's going to be gifts or personality uh, traits that are ones you might not expect or that are not like you. And so your job is really not to make them like you, but to cultivate what God has put in them. And, and that's really what he did with me was to say, okay, I would not have made those decisions, but I want to pay attention to what's here in Glenn's heart. Now, there's a limit to that. You don't want to go crazy here. It can't be like right, this, right. this crazy variety show. So, so again, to use the family metaphor, there has to be some shared DNA. Like what, what, is, the, what is the shared value or organization culturally? You know, at the same time, Kids are not exact. They're not clones of their parents, you know, yeah. um, e e even biological kids. And so so there's 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 a metaphor there or there's a rich um, kind of reflection in that of saying, how do we how do we allow that? So so the feeling for me was it really produced a lot of loyalty uh, for me to mm -hmm. Brady. It produced a lot of trust. Uh, it did make a few people uneasy. There was definitely some questions of like, oh, gosh, what are we doing here? You yeah. Know? yeah. But to, to again, to praise the point that the church was willing to, to let, um, let culture seep up instead of always down. 
uh, we, we were doing weekly communion at the Sunday night service for about a year. And then Brady was like, man, we need to do that on Sunday mornings. Like yeah. this is before we had any other congregations. There's no other location. It was just the two Sunday morning services. And then the Sunday night one that I was leading. And so they decided Let, let's all do weekly communion. Let's all make this kind of the climactic moment of our worship services, you know, mm-hmm. and, and over time that, be, that, that began to sort of filter through and, you know, business leadership experts talk about a keystone habit. You change one thing and it ends up shifting, pivoting in an organization. Weekly communion became like that keystone habit for us where it shifted our preaching. Now our preaching is like, we got to make Jesus the hero of the story because we're going to end the sermon, not with a, with a dramatic altar call or not with a pep talk, go, go take the, you know, change the world, but rather uh, come to the table and receive grace and, and, yeah. and ask for the Holy Spirit to come again. So that stuff in 2010, 2011 began to change the culture of our church uh, in a in a very different way, and I'm so grateful for that. I think I think from a you know, we're we're both well, all three of us are are researchers of young adults Gen Z culture, right? So uh, it depends on who you read or where you read, but I think it's safe to say that there is a stronger push towards a more liturgical style of worship mm-hmm. or practice of worship, especially on a Sunday morning context, right? So. Um, from your perspective, both as a researcher and a pastor, what, what seems to be the thread that is drawing a Gen Z or a young adult generation to that more liturgical conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I I would say just, just to be candid, I, when we started doing this, I, I didn't know any of the research stuff. And there was one, uh, there's one pastor from a, I won't say, you know, a traditional denominational church downtown. And this was when out of our Sunday night service came kind of the, the, the core group that eventually launched new life downtown, which was our first offsite congregation. And when we started doing that, you know, there was one kind of pastor from a mainline denomination downtown who was like, man, did you guys just read some Barna study about liturgy and then just do this because it's cool? You know, and I, I was on my journey towards ordination as an Anglican. And it was like he was accusing me of, you know, following trends. Uh, honestly, I didn't know any of, of the studies at the time. And I'm not sure there were too there was too much data on it. It was just right. it was happening in real time, though. It Now, in retrospect, you're right. It it, it definitely was this this turn. And I think in hindsight, what I would what I would name it as is it's a hunger for rootedness. Mm. Um, I think there's a disillusionment with sort of the flash in the pan, trendy sort of stuff. Hey, this, there were a lot of, you know, the early 2000s was a lot of people self-proclaimed futurists, people who were saying, oh, this is the new trend, or this is what all churches of the future will be, and, you know, all of this stuff. And, you know, that has some merit, but there's, a there's you know, being a futurist is like being a weather forecaster. Like, yeah. how much do people really hold you accountable yeah. to what you say? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I, I think I think for a lot of people my age, a little bit younger, um, there was this sense of like, I don't want to be sold on a new gimmicky, trendy thing. And then specifically, if I'm speaking pastorally at New Life, after what we had gone through with the Ted Haggard scandal in 06, they didn't want to to sign up for something because this dynamic leader said so they didn't want to join a train because this charismatic conductor said, get on the train. You know, Mm -hmm. they needed to know there was a deeper reason for this. So when we started introducing these liturgical elements on Sunday night, it it was a, it like, it, it was like a match lit this flame for, and, 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 and the, the, the kindling was that people were hungry. They were like, man, I, I need something ancient. I need something that has been here before us that will be here after us. So it, 
it's rootedness, but it's also sort of long, long lastingness, if you will, you know, like, yeah, yeah. like when I die, my kids will still be saying the Lord's prayer or the Nicene Creed, or they'll still be coming and receiving the body and the blood. So that was super, I felt like pastorally just talking with people, that's what people were, were, were latching onto. So there's that rootedness. There's kind of the, the long lastingness. And I think secondly, very closely connected to is how blatantly Christ centered some of the liturgical practices are. I mean, obviously, you know, there's some language in it or whatever that, that list names, the Trinity and all that, but think specifically of the Lord's table. We would say to our church, and we still do pretty regularly, the worship team may have an, have an off day and you're like, nah, 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 you know, that, that my experience was, quote unquote, affected by that. The preacher may, may have an off day and our ability to hear God's word may be impacted by that. But when we come to the Lord's table, that's like John the Baptist saying, get out, get out of the way here and behold the Lamb of God who takes away right. the sin of the world. That's the moment that really we, we can't mess up. This is the behold the Lamb of God moment. And when we would say that to people, they were like, oh, my gosh, in a non-denominational church that had already been burned by the failure of a, of a you know, sort of charismatic leader figure. That was what we were hungry for. And as it turns out, that, that was happening in a wider cultural level as well. And I think some of it is the result of in greater and lesser degrees of these types of leadership realities from the pulpit let's just say it that way right so yes so these yes. these um disillusioned sort of disappointed discouraged followers of jesus who who were looking for a more um stable or a more rooted as you kind of said way and i think that's just an expression across the culture yeah. it's interesting because you mentioned it and we at this side of the table are also pentecostal charismatics we yeah. grew up in, in we're pentecostal by uh, by expression and by theology, but there seems to be in our thinking a divergence when we talk about liturgy and Pentecostalism. Mm. Yeah, um, we know two things are kind of holding true at the same time right now: that the fastest growing churches in the world are Pentecostal charismatic churches. The deep hunger of a generation is for liturgical or rootedness. How have yeah. you found the ability to sort of thread those two things together? Yeah. Well, two things. One, one, I, I think they are complementary um, paradigms. And, and one of our catchphrases in the early years of the Sunday night service was rooted in history with room for mystery. And that, that was this idea of just because you're historically anchored doesn't mean that you're stuck in the past, you know, doesn't right, mean yeah. that you're like, you know, and so sometimes when I tell pastors or worship leaders, and they're like asking me, oh, what, what should we do with the liturgy? You know, I, the first thing I say to people is, it's not about the language of the liturgy. It's about the logic of the liturgy. Hmm. So, yeah. so I don't care if you use these exact prayers or say these exact things. What I do, what I would encourage is that you learn from the logic of the liturgy and the logic of take, for example, the book of common prayers, uh, right one service, you know, for the, for the communion service, there's a logic to it that moves you from the proclamation of the law and, and the announcement of the gospel and the confession of sin, the declaration of grace and the commissioning of the saints out back into the world, gathering word table sending. There's a logic, there's a shape uh, mm -hmm. to the liturgy that we can learn from, we can learn from it so that we don't fall into the trap of like, let's do the variety show church service thing where we do this segment, then this segment, then this segment. No, let's string together a story that is actually 
gospel shaped and Christ centered. So, so number one, that that room for mystery, that, that rooted in history and room for mystery, that that's kind of the complementary uh, elements of, of those two streams. But secondly, and this may, might sound like I'm saying something different, I actually think there is quite a bit of overlap between a charismatic worldview and a sacramental worldview. Mm. So the charismatic worldview believes that man, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, and we can we can like lay hands on yeah, the yeah. sick and see them. We can anoint people with oil. We can. We pray over handkerchiefs for goodness sake. I went to Oral yeah. Roberts University, you know, like we, we, we can do this. Like the, yeah. the, the spirit and the material can go together and hello. That's exactly what a sacramental worldview says. Bread and wine can become an occasion for meeting the presence of God. And um, so, so I, I know they're not identical worldviews, but there's so much overlap. It, it's basically a worldview that says, uh, uh, the, the created world creation is full of its creator and the creator spirit, uh, works within it. Um, okay. as opposed to kind of this, you know, sometimes I worry about worldviews that are more, and they're more like the enlightenment where there's an upstairs downstairs thing. Well, this is our natural world. And then this is the supernatural world. And right. sometimes the man upstairs comes down for a few seconds and then goes back up, you know, actually the, the, the charismatic thing is like, Hey man, come Holy Spirit. It's everywhere. We can start speaking in tongues anywhere, you know, or whatever. Yeah. We can pray for the sick in the grocery store. We can get a word for, word of knowledge. And the sacramental worldview is like that. Bread? Oh, no, no, no. It's not just bread. You know, wine? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not just wine. And so, so mm-hmm. by paying attention to that, it really helps. And, and for our church, we would say to them with this weekly communion thing, man, this is more than remembrance. This is actually a, a place of encounter. Now we don't, uh, you know, we don't do the thing of like, transubstantiation or whatever this is actually literally right, like, no right, no no right. we just we speak more mysteriously than that you know like this is a moment of encounter and charismatics know the language of encounter yeah um and i think i think that's that's really good i, I will say one more thing where where the, the the sacramental worldview can help chasten the charismatic worldview is to help us recognize that it, it you don't always feel it uh, for it yeah. for it to be god can be present when you don't always feel it right the charismatic worldview when it runs amok is like man we gotta we gotta generate these feelings all the time you know and the sacramental worldview i feel like is calmer than that <laughs> like you know <laughs> you, you can sit in silence you can contemplate yeah. the birds you, you know and it teaches you to say god is here even when it doesn't feel super exciting yeah and I think one of the cool things here um, with our chaplains that we just did this this past week, we we have a spiritual disciplines seminar for our chaplains here on campus. And we and we use a, a list of 20. I know that, you know, um, Willard and, and Foster are probably the two stalwarts, but there, there are other expressions and variations as well. There's no set list. Right. So, yeah, but this this practice of spiritual disciplines is a very Holy Spirit centric, charismatic driven opportunity to be sacramental and liturgical in your approach to God. And I think, I think one of the cool things is, especially with, um, you know, the young adults, Gen Z coming into college now is that they're very, very open to a spiritual discipline of secrecy or, or of solitude or of silence or meditation. I mean, you know, sort of redeeming and recovering that word from an Eastern ideology, right? This is a, this is a biblical ideology. Right. So yes. I think I think that's that's one caveat or one area where I see in pastoral leadership, pastoral development, where we can help our congregations, especially as they want to help teach their people and approach young adults 
that they incorporate mm-hmm. these practices into sort of their their discipleship mechanisms um, if they even have them. So. Yeah, so I would think when what's Very it's good. the pastor listening who is charismatic Pentecostal. We have our own liturgy. Let's face it, a Pentecostal yeah. liturgy. Yes, is, yes. Sing three or four songs. You take an offering. You have a special yeah. music. You preach. You have an altar call. That's the liturgy of charismatic Pentecostals. So mm-hmm. it's not that we don't have liturgy. We just have a different liturgy. But the yes. maybe the leader <laughs> who is Pentecostal charismatic in 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 theology and approach and sort of that culture and what would be sort of the first step for them if they want to explore bringing a liturgical sacramental worldview into their services? Where would, where would you tell them to start? It's a great question. Um, into the services themselves, I would say um, try, even if it's not, you know, weekly or anything like that, I would say, let try doing a communion service that isn't an afterthought, you know, where mm-hmm. I've seen yeah. sometimes where the communion table thing is like, Hey, we got this table in the back. Just go if you feel led. And we've also got prayer state. And it's sort of like this smorgasbord of, of options. Uh, that's okay. But but I would try doing a service where at the end of it, you're basically doing use those Pentecostal instincts to have an altar call. <laughs> but the altar call this time is to the to the table. Yeah. And the way we're the way it's the same instincts. You know, we we joke at New Life. People are like, oh, how come you stop doing altar calls? Like, no, man, we do an altar call every week. We're all coming to receive the bread and the wine. And, and so, so th- there is a, there is a way where you say, hey, we're, let's all repent today. Let's all come. And, and then, Hey, try a prayer of confession. T- to be honest at new life, we knew that people would have a bit of an allergic reaction to a quote unquote man-made prayer, you know? Yeah. So, so we, when we first did a prayer of confession, we took some, some verses out of Psalm 51 and we said, let's just pray some of these words, search me, Oh God, see if there be, you know, and let's, let's make this our prayer of confession. So then we made that our prayer of confession. Then we'd have like this moment of receiving the grace of God again. Lord, thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you. You could you know, even sing responsively to that. And then you said, now let's come to the Lord's table and let's not just remember, but let's expectantly um, welcome the Holy Spirit to help us encounter Jesus as we receive the bread and the cup. And then let's look forward to the day of his return. So there's that past, present and future elements to it. Try doing that. I mean, and, and maybe you, you, you know, you're doing it once, maybe it's once a month. Uh, I, I and, and watch how people respond to that. I think just shifting the way we frame uh, coming to the Lord's table, it sometimes charismatics do it and it feels like it's, this is magic you know if you come mm-hmm. to the lord's table and you, you'll be healed of all your you know ah. and, and other times we do it and it's an afterthought i think there's another way here and this is what we can learn from kind of liturgical traditions of, of framing the lord's table differently and 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 see how that goes but i think for us i i think that can become again like that keystone habit it, it'll start to tweak the way you do the rest of the elements in yeah. the service hmm. i think it's so funny you kind of mentioned um uh, just sort of taking the time to, to even maybe pray a prayer of confession. Right. Uh, so I, re- I remember like when I first, when I first went to, to Saddleback, the guy that I was with, I, he's one of my best friends in the world, but he would always read scripted prayers. I'm like, come on, Kev, mm-hmm. like let the spirit pray. You know what I'm saying? Like he's like hardcore Southern Baptist yeah. and he's reading these scripted prayers. But <laughs> the point is, the point is there are times I have found now as I've grown and you know, yeah, yeah. you know, learn. I, th- I think there are times now where a scripted prayer, maybe one like a prayer of confession, is so much more powerful than yes. than me trying to simply generate or yeah. yes. you know what I'm saying, trying it's to generate through. something. Absolutely, yeah. thought it's through. thought through. It's intentional. The the wording yeah. is yeah. 
is more sincere or something. So, yeah. so even something as simple as scripting something out for a special yes. moment like that, that shows a great amount of intentionality yeah. uh, is, is, a, is yeah. an easy first step to, to help in that. Way. I, yes. I think you hit the nail on the head though. I think a lot of times in our services, communion is such a, Oh, whatever the rhythm is first Sunday, last Sunday, we got to do communion. Somebody gets up there and reads the same verses and says the same thing they said a month ago. It's not thought through. And so I think this idea of really taking some time to process and make communion a critical element of the service and not just something else you do. Um, And I, I love communion. There is something powerful about that expression and something. If you really sit in that moment, I think God moves mightily, whether it's charismatic mm-hmm. Pentecostal or liturgical or whatever yeah. your, you know, your, your faith expression is in that, yeah. but it's, it's still the bread and the wine, you know? Yes. Um, so yeah, so, go ahead. Well, I was good. I was just, it's so good, Jeff. And I totally agree. And I think, you know, uh, maybe another idea too is like a a, a benediction kind of ascending moment, and yeah. that that's interesting. You know, a lot of times it's just a dismissal, but in liturgical services, again, gathering, word, table, sending, gives it reminds us that we're being sent in the power of the Spirit on mission back into the world. That kind of a thing, and so and so in in some ways, I think I think there is um we can leverage the Pentecostal confidence in the Holy Spirit and to say, hey. Let me formally pray over you ascending. And that's another moment, Rob, for a, for a set prayer, for a written yeah. prayer. There's some great ones in these prayer yeah. books, you know, to that's... like send you out into the world. Yeah, yeah they're fantastic. We just, I'm going to tease it out because we're planting a church. We're, we will have launched by the time this releases, but we're like three weeks away from launch. So we're really putting the pieces together. We have scripted a benediction to to end our service. So, because awesome. there's nothing worse, I think, as a Pentecostal, like, and just your Pentecostal church, somebody over there is getting prayed for, and you go, "Can I leave yet?" Like, <laughs> like, like, like when's it over, right? And so we wanted to be able to hold the tension and be like, "If you need ministry, that can take place." But we're going to close the benediction so the people that are that are ready to go know they can yeah. go. Like yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of yeah. like a few, and we've Good. sent them, you know. So you're so, a pragmatist. That's what you are. You're not holy. You're well, a pragmatist. <laughs> Both. I'm there learning. are practical reasons to I, I'm learning logical both, so. but it was yes, it was yes. pragmatic but it also allowed us to have that sending moment and yes. and for those that aren't maybe needing ministry that day and go okay we're gonna send you out and and go from there and then they clearly know they can leave without going like this is awkward this like is awkward. jenny's over there still getting prayed for do i leave or not leave you know like <laughs> so right we've sort of right. looked at some of those things and i love this uh, conversation on communion as well and i'm i'm processing i'm just like taking notes for our own church so yeah um you are a student of theology though you call yourself a practical theologian speaking of practicality yeah for those of our friends who may not know what that necessarily means, give us a quick description of what a practical theologian is. One of my friends joked, he said, practical, that's like an oxymoron, man. You know, like, <laughs> how can you be practical? <laughs> um, so I, I did my doctorate in theology at Durham University in the UK. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there, are, there are many models. I, I have discovered that in many American seminaries, when they say practical theologian, what they mean is applied theology. So yeah. you learn systematics or biblical theology, and then you apply it in your preaching and teaching or worship leading, whatever. 
Uh, the British model is a bit different than that. It's 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 actually practical theology is a is a dialogue, a critical dialogue between the situation or the praxis and the theory. So I would say it's a blend of situ good situational analysis and rich theological reflection. Mm -hmm. um, now, as an evangelical, I would I would put one over the other. I would put theological reflection has the authoritative voice. Situational analysis is the preparatory sort of voice. You know, like yeah. there are some more liberal or progressive theologians that would say, no, 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 both are equally important. So we can take experience and give it as much authority as we give the, the Bible or traditional. Obviously, I don't believe that. Um, but I do think, you know, take any number of issues that we're going through today from um, from understanding racism and, and what we mean by that word um, to mask wearing or vaccines or this and that. Lots of people do very thin situational analysis and then they jump to this rich theological mm -hmm. reflection. So if you're if you're, um, you know, the, someone critiques the, the Florida governor for letting parents choose whether or not kids have to mask up in schools and the, this quote unquote public theologian was like, oh, well, this is like Herod's slaughter of the innocents. I'm thinking, wow, that's a strong. So so you have yeah. a rich you have a rich biblical grounding here that there's a ruler who used power uh, at the expense of vulnerable children. OK, and, but you are you're but you're doing pretty thin situational analysis because is that what's going on here? You, you see what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so to be a practical theologian means you've got to take the situation seriously enough. You've got to complexify the situation and mm. then. Uh, and then look to the scriptures and historical theology to say, and now how do we make sense of this? But if you cheapen the situational analysis, I don't care how good your theological reflection is. You're a bad public theologian. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. well, that's and, and as you're kind of talking, my mind immediately jumped to uh, large scale system structures, uh, especially in a megachurch context like you're familiar with, I'm familiar with, where those processes can become sort of mechanistic and just driven, right? Uh, and there, there's a, always going to piece of that, uh, especially in any kind of large scale organizational structure or whatever, right? Uh, Multi-site models, whether you're a franchise model or, or not or whatever, yep. right? So the things are there. Yep. The point is, I love this conversation as you're, as you're presenting it uh, from a practical theologian standpoint, this contextual analysis and this heavy theological analysis and, and that conversation happens in between. So from a church perspective, from a from a church leadership perspective, from a pastoral perspective, mm -hmm. uh, how do we begin to allow both to set with equal value and power, right? Because yeah. especially when we all know someone or, or some people who are heavy theological or they're heavy, mm -hmm. you know, situational analysis and, and just responding mm -hmm. to culture yeah. or whatever. Right. So, right. so, and, and from a leadership perspective, how can we begin to help pastors understand the value and the weight of both? And yeah. what kind of you think would the impact would be if, if we could help help those scales a little bit? Yeah. Man, it's a critical question, Rob. And I, I feel bad for for pastors and church leaders today yeah. because the cultural the cultural situation is very complex. And and we're we're supposed to be organizational leaders running the, the quote unquote business affairs of the church. And we're supposed to be experts at exegeting the culture. And we're supposed to sort of be experts in exegeting the text. It's, it's a very difficult job. So I don't want church leaders listening to this to feel like, oh, my right. gosh, I got another I got another burden on me. Um, and I, I, I am grateful for people who can do some of that work for us and synthesize. Um, of course, you know, look, in an ideal world, we would all take the time and like, OK, let's read primary sources on critical race theory and then figure out what we, you know. 
well, I don't know that we have the time for that, but how can, are, are there people who can do some of that homework for us? Maybe even find slightly differing voices. I mean, the, my best sort of advice to pastors about this is just, just uh, try to drink from a couple of different streams or just listen to a couple different takes, you know? So, okay, here's this guy synthesizing the dangers, you know, again, working example here, the dangers of CRT. Okay. Here's this guy saying, yeah, but here's the, the merits of it. Like, okay. So, so just, just trying to, to, to get your footwork. Like what I'm learning about that subject is someone will say, well, the dangers is it's, it's a false gospel. It, it, it has a, a false anthropology. It doesn't give Denver seminary did a great podcast on this where they were talking about, um, you know, it doesn't have a good account for human sin and therefore it doesn't have a, a, the right account for redemption. That's good. But then someone else says, well, but it does give a good voice for, for historic black pain and lament yeah. like, oh, well that, well, that's important, you know? So yeah. I would say the best thing we can do is lose our hubris, lose our pride, lose our like dogma about situational analysis. That, that was my, my slight little dig about the, the futurist <laughs> comment earlier in our podcast here is, part of the problem with it is when we become so sure of ourselves, like I, this is the way, this is the future. This is the answer. You're like, well, I, I think you're doing good situational analysis when you have a nuanced complex picture that you're like, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's some parts I'm not really sure about. Hey, now let's turn to the scripture. Here's what Jesus would say. Here's what, you know, and, 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 uh, and that's, that's our way forward. But I will say, you know, for pastors, man, we can't address all of it. We can't do right. all we can't, talk about all of the things. And what I am very sad for, for pastors today is there's this increasing pressure where it's like, if your pastor is silent about, you know, blah, 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 time to find a new church. I think that's, a, that's an impossible standard. Yeah. And the best thing we can do is continue to point people to Jesus, continue to try to unpack the revolutionary nature of the gospel. I mean, N.T. Wright, one of my heroes, you know, wrote this uh, article to the to the editor of a, a paper about it, it, you know is the church too woke or whatever and he basically says if we would have taken the gospel seriously enough to understand how it breaks down walls between all ethnicities we we wouldn't need poor theories you know mm -hmm. it's like it, for a person who's who's dying of thirst you might find dirty water in the ditch and they might say that's that's quenching my thirst but in the end it's going to kill them and so i think that's where we're at now so so maybe on the positive front we could say we we can't be experts on every situational thing but if we could at the very least start with how revolutionary is the gospel of jesus christ and maybe we can do the proactive work of of uh, constructive work if you will um for our people that's, that's good. good. Yeah. And I think that's important. Like and I've tried to center myself on scripture. Like one of our values in our local churches, that scripture is our standard. And so, yeah, like, and, and it becomes almost a filter in some of these conversations. I've got a lot of those, those situations and situational ethics and all those things where mm -hmm. I just don't know the answers because I, I've not had the time and most pastors and leaders right. don't, like you said, don't have the time to, to read two or three books from each side or listen to an hour long yeah. podcast from each side. Right. to come up right. with some things and then get up every Sunday and deliver something from scripture that yeah. is proper exegesis and, and yeah. helping the people of God. Like we just can't be all things. And so that's right. Um, I, I think it's a good encouragement to, to, yeah, let's go back to the gospel. Cause I think yes, sometimes we've moved off of that to, to preach on some of these other things um, yeah. and focus the emphasis on bringing centrality to Christ in the church. Yes. Yes. Well, right. <laughs> Imagine Jesus well, I mean, being the center of it all, right? 
Yes. And, 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 and tying this back to our earlier conversation about liturgical stuff, this is the reason why in, in, in liturgical churches, they preach from the lectionary. So the, yeah. the text is already assigned. Now, we don't do lectionary preaching at New Life, but we do all of our sermon series, with very, very few exceptions, are from books of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that is what can, can help us as pastors. Again, it doesn't mean we're ducking contemporary issues. Look, we're about to start a series this fall on the book of Galatians. We're definitely going to get into how the, the gospel confronts the tendency for humans to divide along ethnic and nationalistic lines for whatever yeah. reasons, or the tendency for human beings to invent our own scoreboards of who's in and who's out, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's going to hit, that's going to, it's going to rebuke Marxism, but it's also going to rebuke nationalism, you know? So, yep. so they're, 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 but, but I can, I can spend a minute or two there, but the series or the sermon is about Jesus and Galatians, you yeah. know, and that's better than saying, I'm going to do a 60 minute lecture on the evils of blah, blah, blah. Well, you don't know enough about that to do that. You know, yeah. and I don't think our people like in those that are like siding, they don't want a 60 minute lecture. They just want your, your 120 characters on Twitter about it. Like, <laughs> like they don't yeah, want right. the 60 minute lecture. They just Worse. want to know your opinion yeah. and whether they agree or disagree with you. Yeah. So yeah. what have you found? And it's a good segue in the study of practical theology and becoming a theologian of sorts in how you lead and especially in how you sort of communicate from the scripture. How has that impacted that? Ooh, I mean, I think I'm always looking for, um, I think I'm always looking for the places where people are, the questions they're asking, mm-hmm. the longings they're experiencing, the fears they want to, you know, I love, you know, Tim Keller talks in his book about preaching about what, what is that, that um, fear or what is that hope or what is that longing or what is that, you know? And so when, in many ways, that, that idea that training as a practical theologian is to say, I don't have to do deep, thick situational analysis every Sunday, um, but enough to where it, it, actually there's, a, there's, a, there's going to be a common thread, you know, um, I was preaching at our desperation conference early this summer, a bunch of teenagers, a couple thousand teenagers. And I, I've done enough reading about sort of this cultural milieu to know that uh, the voice of culture for, especially for young people is write your own story, you know, kind of the self-determined self, look inside yourself for either sexuality or your own longings and desires, and let that be the defining piece of who you are. But, but in whatever uh, specifics, the idea is take the pen in your own hands. So I didn't tell them all the books I'm reading. I didn't tell them that you're actually following Rousseau and Marx and Freud, and I'm not naming all of the philosophical. I've done that reading, but but what I'm saying to them is, hey, you're going to hear the voice like you decide who you are and you take the pen in your hands, you know, and and I. I, I preached about how in the end that fails and had, it was, you know, it was a youth group thing. So there's an illustrated sermon with a, an artist painting a picture behind me and I took the paint from her and I began to like mess up the canvas, you know, mm-hmm. and then talked about get repentance, giving the pen back, giving the paintbrush back. And then the artist actually made something beautiful out of it. So, so there's a whole, that's a whole sermon that it, there's a, there's a little thread of cultural analysis that I was aware of. And I think that what we're trying to do as church leaders is anytime you open a text to prepare a sermon, you want to say, huh, what aspects of culture does this confront? What aspects of culture does this actually uh, give a better answer to than culture is answering? You know, so, so in this case, it's that longing to have a meaningful and beautiful life. But culture says, well, the way to do that is by you being the author of your own story. 
and having absolute unfettered freedom. And scripture says, no, no, the way you do that is by surrendering your, your story and your life to the creator and the redeemer. So just that little bit of knowledge helps me tilt uh, the felt need. So I'm not doing a Sunday school Bible study on uh, God as creator and God as redeemer. Rather, I'm, I'm preaching a sermon now because it's speaking to the people, speaking to the cultural moment. Uh, th- this might be a great place to just kind of plug it in. We, we talked about it a little bit for the show, but it sounds like some of these pastoral challenges and um, sort of adversities that every pastor is facing. I don't care how big or how small the church is, right? Right. It's this cultural onslaught um, yeah. that, that they're being faced with, that they're having hard times navigating, right? So in your book that's coming out in February, if I'm not mistaken, Resilient Pastor, are these some mm-hmm. of the things that you kind of address in there? If so, like yeah. maybe give us like a couple bit of talking points about yeah. uh, what that book's going to be about so that we can maybe look into it and, and maybe yeah. think from it. Thank you, Rob. Uh, yeah, we, we, we identify, I identified eight challenges uh, that are facing pastors. And I, I actually believe the, the banner, you know, the, the naming of these eight challenges show up in every age, but then each chapter kind of gives a more specific way that these challenges are showing up today. Four for the pastor, the challenge of vocation. What is our calling? Mm-hmm. The challenge of spirituality. How do we stay alive to God and close to God? The challenge of relationships. Can we really have meaningful, mutual, uh, symmetrical relationships? And then and the challenge of uh, credibility, which is Actually, that one is probably a new challenge with with the study that I did with Barna. So Barna uh, approached me about kind of this project and we we designed some new research together and they really kind of essentially helped with the situational analysis, if you will. And then I'm I'm the rest of that makes up about 10 percent of each chapter. And then I'm doing this theological Mm -hmm. reflection and mining the scriptures and church history for some wisdom and that that fourth challenge for the pastor the challenge of credibility that is one of the new ones where the pastor is not an authoritative or trustworthy voice in the community at large anymore that is one of the bigger shifts Uh, and then there's four challenges facing the church the challenge of worship Uh, why do we gather why do we need to gather that again is another fairly unique challenge post-pandemic digital church all that stuff church on demand And then the challenge of formation. This one is more of an evergreen challenge. I think in every era, the church is trying to figure out how do we actually make uh, disciples of Jesus. Uh, And then the the third challenge in the church is the challenge of unity. Um, And that I I named some specific ones that talk about the the complexity of of tackling racism and how even the church is divided about what that means. And then the challenge of of nationalism and and why that can be a threat uh, to church unity. And then the fourth challenge for the church is the challenge of mission. What are we actually called to do? Hmm. Why do we keep wanting to split up quote unquote evangelism from quote unquote justice when the king, the gospel of the kingdom puts both together. So that together, that makes the eight challenges that that we outlined. There's some early chapters that kind of lay the larger landscape of the shifts of kind of this, some call it a new secularism. Some call it post Christendom or post Christian. I use some different terminology in that early chapter. And then there's a couple of ending chapters that talk about a spirit of collaboration. Some of the stuff we're talking about today, like the charismatic and the liturgical, how can that, that's a kind of collaboration, you know, where we're a symbiotic uh, relationship with other streams. Uh, And then, and then finally um, the idea of the power and the presence of God. I mean, maybe that's the charismatic in me coming out at the very end saying, 
in every age, the only way we're going to make it through is by the power of the spirit um, helping the church. We're not going to get through this by better techniques or better analysis. At the end of the day, it's come Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Amen. At the end of the day, you you listed, I think every leader goes, yeah, I see that. Like, like I see those challenges in my my local context or my in my personal ministry or whatever it is. I mean, um, some of the things you mentioned and the credibility, I think I just had a conversation with my wife about that the other day that, that you know, even in the 80s or, or in 90s, the, the banker, the lawyer, and the pastor and the doctor all were credible. Like they were the people yep. that were credible. And those people have been discredited over and over. Some rightfully so because they they've made sure. a mess of themselves. Sure. But but just as a profession, those people have seemed to lose credibility. And now everybody's yeah. an expert in everything, so to speak. Um, <laughs> Google it. Yeah, Wikipedia. Yeah, <laughs> uh, they, makes everybody yeah. experts. And so yeah. so the credibility is an important issue. And just touch on that real briefly. How do we as leaders? maintain that credibility or gain credibility in culture or is it something we need to even work towards well it's it's you are right and i love that observation of comparing it to some of those other vocations or professions i i i don't know that there is a regaining the ground nor do i necessarily think that's the goal right i think what we need to do is sort of reverse engineer or kind of diagnose our way backwards and to say how did we lose this credibility and at least one of the ways we lost credibility was the mishandling of power. Yeah. Um, yeah. Clergy were given a kind of social, spiritual power. And that's why, you know, the misuse of it is why we have books now about narcissism in the church and spiritual right. abuse in the church. And uh, on the f- flip side, what a, what a tove or good church, you know, looks like McKnight's book. Um, and so in, in my chapter on credibility, uh, my charge to all of us, m- myself included, is how can we steward power differently? How can we recognize that the source of our authority? So I'll say this, uh, Andrew Root in his book, The Pastor in a Secular Age, talks about that pastors used to gain their power from uh, education. You know, you got your, this is, every pastor was a doctor, you know, something, you know, a PhD, whatever. And then it was, no, no, they, they gained their credibility from the size of their institution. Well, these guys were like, man, gaining, you know, then, then now it's like, no, the pastors gain their credibility by the number of their social media followers, you know? And, and I think all of that is wrong. All of that is insufficient and inadequate, all of it. And, and what the sooner we recognize that actually the source of our authority is Jesus Christ, who says, as the father sent me, I am sending you. Then we can recognize actually before Jesus said those words in, 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 in John's gospel, he took off his robe, put a towel around his waist and washed their feet. Jesus mm-hmm. knowing that all authority. Be. So when we recognize the source of our authority, we can then understand the shape of our authority and the shape of our authority has to be cross shaped. It has to be mm-hmm. cruciform. It has to be on our knees, foot washing sort of use of power. Now, will that regain our credibility and make us respectable members of society? I don't know, but it is the right thing to do. Right. And, yeah. and you got to do the right thing for a, for the right reason for a really long time. That's one of the, that's actually one of Brady's sayings around new life. When he came, you know, post a church, a post a scandal in a church. He said, look, you know, look, we're going to try to do the right thing for the right reasons for a really long time. And Hey, if it rebuilds our reputation, great. If it doesn't, we've done the right thing for the right reason for yeah. a really long time, you know? And, and that in and of itself is a, is a catalytic shift in the mindset of leadership theory, leadership practice. I mean, all of, all of those things, but I mean, so the, the character development and the credibility, yeah. 
Um, and I love the fact that you're pointing out, you know, regaining the status is not the objective. It's, not it's the always objective, been about right. obedience, right? right? It's always been about the followership. How much are we willing to die to ourselves to allow him yes. to, to live through us? So, so I love that. I love that conversation. Yeah. And I think we could talk for probably two or three more hours, but with, to respect your time, <laughs> to respect our listeners time. We do have one final question. We do ask every guest that comes on the show, and it's uh, that we do record here at the lovely campus of Lee University. That's true. Welcome back, students. Welcome back. Um, what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? Oh, man. Oh, gosh. I think it would be that communion and intimacy with jesus is the fountainhead of everything i i got to oru or roberts university and i didn't have a car and have a computer and have you know and often on weekends i would disappear i'd find a piano practice room down the hall farthest down the hall turn the lights off and just go in there and worship my heart out on friday nights and then you know as things began to change and i began to date the girl who was now my wife and we're celebrating 20 years and you know all this stuff uh it, it, lots of ups and downs lots of different ways of spending my weekends um but i i realized that actually that is the lifeblood of everything and i i yeah. found myself in different moments returning to that room those piano practice rooms you know ma- you know when when holly and i were broken up or when you know things were going rough and i i look back at that now and i think I didn't realize how important that lesson is, but, and I, I would say, you know, when we went through some difficult stuff at new life, the shooting that happened after the scandal, um, returning to that place of intimacy and communion with Jesus, that is the heart of it all. And it's a lesson that I continue to to be reminded of and return to, but it's a lesson that I learned in college. Mm, That's That's a great answer. Man, Glenn, it's been such a joy to have you on the show. And, um, you know, we, we look forward to getting the book in February. And of course your, your recent book that just came out and I want to make sure that I mention it here. Um, it's what, where, where's it at Jeff? It's worship, worship, worship in the world to come. Yeah. Worship, worship in the world to come. Sorry. I was, worship. I was reading it, but I wasn't believing it. When we were kids, it was all about going to heaven. Yeah. They yeah. Say, yeah, yeah. All about going to heaven. I'll fly away and up yeah. yonder and all the things. What's that conversation the other day? Well, another day, another day. But anyway, so it's been a joy Thank to have you. you on the show, man. Uh, God bless you. And uh, as we always like to say here, the leadership drip. And you got a seat at the table. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. If something from this episode helped you lead better, then share it on your social media and tag us. If we see it, we may share it to our channels. We appreciate you taking time to join us. And remember, you always have a seat at the table.